Amen. I don't know about you guys, but my soul is so filled right now. How awesome was that worship and prayer and scripture reading and giving? And we serve a good God. And how incredible is the concept that darkness trembles at the name of Jesus. Do you believe that? Come on, do you believe that? Fear shudders in the presence of Christ. Is that right? I said, is that right? Oh, we serve a great God who has overcome death and sin and guilt and shame at the cross and through the empty tomb, and every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that right? Man, he's a good, I'm, I'm preaching, I'm not even started yet. <laughs> this is all warm up. Uh, man, it is, it is good to be with you guys this morning. It's been a while since I've been at this campus, several months. And so uh, we've missed being here. Uh, my name is Jared Bryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff, uh, pastor of community life and missions. And so over the last several months, uh, several things have happened, actually. Uh, we have two daughters. So our oldest daughter, Genevieve, is four-year-old. And um, she is just growing like a weed. It's crazy. I told her the other day, I'm like, stop growing. Stop getting bigger. And she goes, Daddy, how will I then be a woman? <laughs> So, she's cute. And then our youngest daughter, Penelope, just turned one last week. And so, uh, have you guys seen the movie, you know, Lemony Snickets? Some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. Okay, well, anyway. If you've seen it, I, I saw her this morning. She's in the nursery right now. and She's got her little ponytail with a bow. She looks just like the baby from, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. After the service. Uh, anyway, so they uh, are just uh, amazing. This is my wife, Skye. You want to give kind of a queen's wave? <laughs> and uh, she, I know the cliche, it's a cliche for a reason. She's my better half, but man, it's true. And so, um, so we are thrilled to be here with you guys this morning. I think a good place to start is praying. What do you say? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. I think of what the psalmist says, that maybe the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You are the light of the world. And you have authority over every authority, every demon, every enemy, all sin, all guilt, all shame. You have authority over all of it. And it all bows at your feet. And what's incredible is you give us identity. We're looking at that in Romans, and you give us purpose, and you share your victory with us. So thank you, Jesus, that you conquer, and through you we are more than conquerors, through you who love us. <laughs> Father, we give you all praise, all honor, all glory. Help us to seek you with every shred of passion, energy, effort, thought, word and deed that we have, because you are the ultimate pursuit. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. How many of you have a really good lost and found story? I'm not going to call on you, so don't worry. You have a good lost and found story? Any good lost and found stories? I want to hear them afterwards. One of the best I've ever heard was from one of our deacons at our previous church in Nevada. <clears throat> and he was celebrating his 25th wedding anniversary with his wife, 
So they decided, let's go to Hawaii. How awesome would that be? And they take some of the friends with them. And, and they go, and they just have a ball. I mean, they see all the sights. They eat out at restaurants. They stay at this beach resort with beachfront property right on the ocean. And it's just incredible. They go swimming one afternoon in the ocean, and things are great. And so he gets back to his hotel room, and he's getting ready for dinner. He's washing his hands, and he looks down at his finger and realizes his wedding ring is gone. I mean, gone. And as you would expect, panic sets in. Partly because he knew his wife would be really upset, but mostly because in 25 years of marriage, he had never even taken his ring off, let alone lost it. And so he is just frantically searching their hotel room, flipping over the mattress, flipping over pillows, looking, scouring everywhere. He calls all the restaurants where they were to see if it was left there. He thinks back through all the sights they had seen, and then it dawns on him. He had it right before they went swimming in the ocean. And he's thinking, oh, it's, it's gone. It has to be gone. And so he goes with uh, his friends, and they search the beach, and they are just scouring through the sand. And this is hundreds of yards of beach. And they couldn't even remember where they were swimming exactly. So they look in the beach. They look in the water. They were several yards out in the water. And all of a sudden, right then and there, they find nothing. And so disheartened, in despair, he thinks to himself, this is just a frivolous pursuit. I mean, think of the statistical improbability. It's astronomical to find. It's probably swept out to sea by the tide. We're never going to find it. So he feels dejected, and he goes back to his hotel room, and he can't sleep a wink that night. They're supposed to fly out the next afternoon, and so he prays. In desperation, he prays, God, please please help me find this ring. I realize it's just a material thing. It's just this metal object. But it is significant to me because it is a token of the marriage covenant relationship I have with my wife. And if it is significant to me, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So if it's significant to me, it's significant to you. Please, please help me to find it. No matter what, I will give you glory. And so he can't sleep all that night. The next morning, he wakes up early before they're about to fly out, and he goes down to the beach, and he thinks to himself, let me just give it one more shot. And he's looking around, looking in the sand and the water, and he's thinking, ah, this, is, this is useless. And at that moment, he sees out of the corner of his eye, in his periphery, this little, little shimmering light, this little reflection. He's thinking, no, surely not, Right? There's no way. And so he, he makes his way over to where he sees the light. And he plunges his hand into the sand and pulls out his ring. Now, how incredible is that? Isn't that amazing that we serve a God who would do something like that? Like, think of the statistic improbability of that. How incredible is that? How much more incredible is it that God not only wanted him to seek and find this little ring, this metal ring, but he wants us to seek and find him. In fact, that is really the entire premise this morning. It's a very short, simple main idea, but it is powerful and it is profound, and it is this. 
God desires that we seek him. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. We're taking one quick week off from Romans. We'll be back in Romans 6 next week. And so today we're looking at 2 Chronicles 14. Chronicles is in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, ask Google. <laughs> it's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. And when you, as you read the Old Testament, you will discover that God showed special favor to this group of people called the Israelites. And he declared them as his people, and he redeemed them, and yet, alas, sin was deeply embedded in their hearts. And so they rebelled against God in order to worship false gods, seeking joy, contentment, fulfillment in these other gods, thinking that they will bring satisfaction seeking anything else besides God. And this discontentment, this disregard of God leads his people to destruction. Civil war literally breaks out among the Israelites and God's people are divided into two camps. The northern kingdom, which they called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which they called Judah. And so First and Second Chronicles is actually, in the Hebrew Bible, one book called Chronicles. And it is a compilation of stories from Israel's history demonstrating its need for a messianic king. And as you read through it, you see that Israel's leaders and Judah's leaders keep failing over and over and over. And you get this sense that the only true leadership that works, the only true kingship that works is God. What a novel idea. However, in order for that to work, The people must seek him and follow him through faith. In fact, the phrase seek the Lord is found 11 times in the book of Chronicles, more than any other book by far in the Bible. And so we're going to look at one king in particular, the tragedy of King Asa. Look at chapter 14. Asa takes over as king from his father Abijah in verse 2. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. I'm sorry, that's verse 1. Verse 2, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Notice that he is referred to as the Lord his God. This wasn't merely the God of his father. He wasn't born into a religion. This was not the faith of his parents. The Lord was his God. And of all things in the world that could have his allegiance, possessions, power, prestige, popularity, any other words that begin with P, God was his ultimate priority. And Asa demonstrates his allegiance to God in the next few verses, verses 3 through 6. He destroys the idols in the land that people were worshiping because their hearts were being drawn away from the Lord. Asa commands the people to seek the Lord and follow him. And for the first 10 years of his reign, there is no war. The land is at rest. God grants him peace. And during this time, he builds up cities. He assembles a large army of 580,000 soldiers. And God prospers his kingdom. Now, you may hear this and say, well, of course he sought God. Of course he persevered to push through and and seek the face of God. People do that when things are good and prosperous. Well, hold on now. Look at verse 9. 
there's this war general named Zerah the Ethiopian. And this dude is one bad mamma jamma. And Zerah comes against Judah with an army of one million warriors. Let me put that in context. For comparison's sake, the United States has the third largest military in the world, second, or excuse me, third only to China and India, and that's because they have a billion people, over a billion people, and so the U.S. right now has 1.3 million active troops in our armed forces. And so Zerah and his army is almost as big as the entire military of the United States. How intimidating would that be? And they're coming with 300 chariots. Chariots back then were like having tanks. I mean, you could just mow people down. So here they are. The odds are clearly stacked against them. And normally, most people would cower under these circumstances. Look at verse 10. Asah goes out to meet him, and his army is lined up against Zerah and his massive army of one million men, and they're facing each other in lines of battle. I think about movies like Braveheart or a civil, any Civil War movie, Revolutionary War movie, where one side, shoulder to shoulder, stands, weapons in hand, the other side does the same. It's a show of force. They're trying to intimidate their enemies. They're trying to intimidate the other side. Now, clearly, I've never been in that situation. I've never been in battle. I have, however, played Red Rover. <laughs> Do you guys remember that game? If you don't, that's probably because you got a concussion from it. I don't know why kids still play it. It's a violent, dangerous game. But if you're not familiar with the, the premise behind Red Rover, it goes like this. You have two teams of kids in this playground game. So one team is lined up holding hands. The other team is lined up holding hands, and they're facing each other. And so one team says, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Jared right over. You always ask for the weak link first. And so I will just go running dead sprint hard as I can towards the other team, and you're trying to break part of the chain. You're trying to break through the link where they're holding hands, and if you do that, you break through, you're able to take one of their team members and absorb them into your team. Well, I remember playing as a kid, and things were not going well. I mean, we were just getting dominated. And so I look at the other side, and in my mind's eye, it appears to me like it's like 20 varsity linemen, 300 pounds each. And I look at my side, and it's me and my scrawny little buddy who's like 100 pounds soaking wet. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. This is not good. You look at your side and you look at the opposition, it's not looking good. You would be intimidated, right? Saul looks at his side and he looks at their side and he enters into one of the greatest mindsets you can possibly have as a follower of the Lord. He gets desperate. He gets desperate. Desperation is a powerful motivator to seek the Lord. I mean, when you hit rock bottom, you have nowhere else to look but up. And too often we bemoan difficult circumstances rather than rejoicing in the opportunity that they present to seek the Lord. See, that doesn't happen when things are peachy. Desperation drops us to our knees as we seek the Lord. I think I woke up some of you just then. You know, I said earlier, one of the greatest joys of my job 
is leading our global missions efforts. And a part of our global missions strategy, as Scott said, is we do go trips. These are short-term cross-cultural ministry trips. And by the way, shameless plug, you guys should think about doing the Peru trip. It'll be awesome. Uh, it's with one of our ministry partners. It's actually our missionaries from this campus, Alan and Diane Fry. And so be thinking about that. Anyway, shameless plug. So this summer, we took a team of Verge students to the Dominican Republic. And I wasn't leading the trip, but I wanted to show my support and get there and encourage them and pray for them. And they were going to meet on a Saturday morning at 4 a.m. So I think I woke up at 3.59. And I get, I'm not a morning person. So I get there, and they're all smiles. They have their energy drinks because it's 4 in the morning. They are hugging their parents. They have their bags packed. They are loading their luggage onto the vans, and things are great. And so we get in a circle, and we get, begin to pray over the trip. And I look around, and I realize someone's missing. We're missing somebody on the team. And coming to find out, we were missing one of our leaders. And so we wait, and we wait, and we wait. More time passes. The flight's going to leave at 845 from Chicago O'Hare. And it's 4.30, and I'm getting a little antsy, like, oh, we need to get going. And so I call her up, and I say, hey, uh, what's going on? Are you all right? Is everything okay? Are you on your way? And she's on the other end, just weeping, bawling. She says, just send them. Just send the team. Go on without me. I'm not going to make it. Long story short, she had her passport, but it was locked inside a building, and that building did not open until 8 a.m. Now, let's do the math. The flight leaves Chicago O'Hare from 8.45. She's at a building in Maryville with her passport. They don't open until 8 a.m. Now, how long does it take to get from Maryville to Chicago O'Hare? Yeah, hour tops in perfect traffic. And we all know how Chicago has perfect traffic. And so I'm thinking, no, she's not going to make it. So I'm calming her down. Oh, don't worry about it. Everything will be okay. Meanwhile, internally, I'm thinking, oh, she's not going to make it. I'm panicking. Uh, I'm already thinking I'm going to call the airline, which I did, and I called them. Okay, maybe we can get her on a later flight. And they said, look, we're booked up to Dominican Republic for the next few days, three or four days. The best we can do is three, four, five days from now, we can get her on a flight, and it'll have to be first class, which I'm sure would be awesome for her. But she would miss most of the trip. So things were not looking good. And so I told her, listen, this is desperate and desperate times in desperation. Let's pray. That's what you do in desperation. Let's pray. And so we prayed together. Ask God, do something incredible. I got the team together and gathered around in a circle and we prayed again in desperation. Lord, please do something. So I send the team on. They go ahead and go and we don't know what we're going to do. Seven o'clock, seven o'clock that morning, I get a call from her and she says, And this is incredible. I wish I had time to tell the story of these details, but she said, Jared, I got the passport. What do I do? I said, you get your husband to take you to the airport like he's Mario Andretti with his hair on fire. Okay, now I realize some of you might be law enforcement in here. Okay, a pastor telling a church member to break the law. Okay, that's a moral quandary. We'll deal with it in a sermon at another time. But the point is, she goes to the, to the airport, and she's driving fast, and they get there at 8 a.m., and I'm still thinking, okay, the flight leaves at 
She has to get her ticket at the ticket counter, go through security, go through the terminal, get to her gate, and usually they close international flights 30 to 45 minutes ahead. No way she's going to make it. So she gets to the ticket counter. They have her ticket ready. She gets to security, and on a Saturday morning, miracle of miracles, there's no one in line. How incredible is that? And so she goes through security. She makes her way. She's sprinting through the terminal, and she gets to the gate as they're closing the door. Now you tell me, isn't the Lord good? Isn't the Lord good? Would he still be good if she did not make her flight? In desperation, we seek God. That is what makes desperation so powerful. That's why I love mission trips. Mission trips are powerful because they yank you out of your comfort zone. Some of you in here are in a season of desperation. What is your desperation moment? Maybe it's joblessness. Maybe it's wayward kids, adult children who have walked away from the faith. Maybe it's childlessness. You've been praying for kids and nothing's come. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's health issues. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's a broken marriage where your spouse has told you, I want out. Maybe it's a spiritual desert where you are praying and praying, and it just seems like your prayers are just hitting the walls. You feel incredibly dry. We had an amazing worship time just now, prayer and music, giving, and you felt nothing. See, spiritual deserts, you know Psalm 63 actually says, earnestly I seek you in a dry and weary land. That's the best time to seek the Lord when you just feel bone dry, spiritual desert. Maybe you are in a desperation moment. What's your desperation moment? In Asa's desperation, what does he do? Look at verse 11. He seeks the Lord. He cries out to him. And here's his prayer. O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. You know what humility is? Humility is genuine understanding of a difference in stature that leads you to submission. So when we understand how mighty and awesome and powerful and wise and incredible, infinitely greater our God is, that there is nothing outside of his realm of possibility, and simultaneously we understand how weak and frail and dependent we are, this infinite difference in stature, when we truly genuinely understand that, it drives us to our knees in humility seeking his face. I don't know if you've ever done this, but with your children, let's say they see a bug, right, a little beetle, and they start freaking out, or maybe it's your husband, I don't know. (laughs) They see a little bug, and what do you tell them? Don't worry, that little bug is more afraid of you than you are of it. Is that true? I don't know. But it better be. Because if this little spider, this little bug starts bowing up and it starts coming at you, and you're a huge, you know, big human being, you know what you're going to do? Squish it. It better understand the difference between the stature of a human and the stature of a tiny little bug. And God is God, and we are not. And the better, faster we understand that, the better off we will be. 
And so cry out to God, who can compare to you? Who can help me more than you can? Asa acknowledges that no one is like our God. So why bother going to anyone else? There's a sense of helplessness that we need in our prayers. You know the shortest prayer in the Bible? Not the shortest verse, the shortest prayer in the Bible is Matthew 14, 30. It's three words. You guys know what they are? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. The context is Jesus' disciples are on a boat. And it's kind of a foggy, misty, rainy you know, evening, and the waves are crashing, and Jesus is coming out to them on the water. And they see Jesus, and like, ah, oh, it's a ghost. Oh, wait, no, it's just Jesus. And they say, wait, Lord, is that you? And, and they tell Peter, it's Jesus. He's walking to us. And Peter, this is so audacious. He's like, hey, Jesus, that looks awesome. Can you call me to come to you on the water? And Jesus says, come on. That's a Jared Bryant translation. He says, come on. And so Peter gets out of the boat and walks on water. Folks, I don't have to tell you that's not a normal occurrence. I was at the lake baptism a few months ago. I didn't see anyone walking on water. And so here Peter gets out of the boat, and he just wants to be with Jesus, near Jesus, in his presence. And so he's walking towards Jesus with all his focus on Christ. But his focus begins to wane He takes his focus off of Jesus and is distracted by the wind and doubt and fear creep in and he begins to sink. Listen, you cannot be more desperate than when you are drowning. And so in his desperation, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out, grabs him by the hand and pulls him up. He answered the prayer. See, when you seek the Lord, be desperate. Be desperate. There is no pride in desperation. We, in humility, completely rely on God. Asa continues in his prayer. He says, in your name, we have come against this multitude. In other words, in your name, for your glory, for your fame, honor, praise, we are stepping out in faith and we are coming against this multitude. Do something for your glory. So when you seek the Lord, be desperate, but also be deflective. Deflect glory back to God. It is not for our glory, not for our reputation, not for our comfort, not for our fame. It is all for him and all about him. Amen? So when you seek the Lord, be desperate, be deflective. And look at the last part of his prayer. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Imagine that you are a kid in a school cafeteria, and you just got your lunch, your lunch tray, and a bully comes up to you, and he knocks the tray out of your hand and pushes you. What do you do at that point? Someone in the first service said you take the tray and smack him. No, (laughs) don't do that. Let me tell you what I would do. I would go to my biggest, beefiest, burliest friend, I mean, a a friend that looks like his muscles have muscles, and I would stand behind him and I'd say, hey, do you see that kid over there? He pushed us. Did he? (laughs) Did he push us? No. But you see what you're doing, right? Your weakness is appealing to his strength. You are getting him involved in the fight, and you are standing behind him as he fights for you. 
And when we go to God, our weakness is appealing to his strength. And we are saying, God, fight for us. This is for your glory. This is for your fame. This is for your worship. Appeal to God's strength. Identify yourself as belonging to him. And now the fight is the Lord's. And so when you seek the Lord, be desperate, be deflective, but also be defended. Look at the result in verses 12 through 15. The Lord completely defeats the Ethiopians. It says they were broken before the Lord, meaning he wins the victory all by himself for and on behalf of his people. So we get to chapter 15. And God sends a prophet named Azariah to talk to Asa and the people. And he says in verse 2, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Literally, this is worded in the Hebrew, if you seek him, he will let himself be found by you. What an incredible concept. God allows himself to be found by us. We worship and serve a father who hears us when we cry out to him. And not only hears us, he is near to us. He is a good, good father. One of my favorite times of the day, every single day, is when I get home from work. And I pull up in the car, up the driveway, open the garage door, pull into the garage. I get out of the car and I hear this noise. And I immediately know what that sound is. It's our four-year-old daughter, Genevieve, jumping up and down in excitement to see her daddy. She heard the garage door open, and so she comes running, and she's just jumping, jumping. And I open the door, and she goes, Daddy! And she runs, and she grabs me around the leg and squeezes me so tight, and I hug her, and it's just this beautiful embrace, this beautiful father-daughter moment that I imagine lasts until she's, what, 17, 18 And it's just this incredible time. I am delighting in her. She is delighting in me. She is actually seeking my presence. And it's this beautiful moment of love. And I so cherish that she delights in my presence and that she seeks me. How much more do you think God delights when we seek him? Is he not an infinitely greater father? He delights when we seek him. The God of the universe who created billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, is near to us. Think about that for a second. The God of the universe is near to us. That should at least get one amen. When you seek the Lord, listen, he is always there. That's a promise. Claim it. Take it to the bank. God's nearness and availability is a beautiful promise. And we see it all throughout Scripture. James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8, those who seek me diligently find me. Deuteronomy 4, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why? Why does God make himself so readily available to us? Because his presence, he knows that his presence is the greatest thing that we can possibly have in life. We were created to know him and to seek 
him above everything else. And so what does it mean to seek the Lord above all else? It's to be obsessed with knowing him. To be consumed with knowing him more. Be obsessed with knowing Jesus more and more. Whatever happened to the Jesus freaks? Back in the 60s and 70s, some of you were alive then. Back in the 60s and 70s, those who lived radically for Jesus were called Jesus freaks. And it was this term of derision. It was a derogatory term, actually. People would say, oh, don't go near her. Don't, don't go near him. He's just a Jesus freak. And then Christians turned it around, and they transformed this derogatory term of persecution and made it a badge of honor. Yeah, call me a Jesus freak. I'm a Jesus freak. I live sold out for him, passionately for him, and nothing and no one else. And then in the 90s, DC Talk made a song of it. But anyway, what would people think if they hear I'm a Jesus freak? What would people do if they find out it's true? I'm not going to sing the song. But what happened to the Jesus freaks? What happened to those who passionately pursue him? Not passively pursue him, passionately pursue him. See, seeking the Lord is actively striving to know him more. There's labor in it. Seek the Lord even when you don't feel like it. In fact, especially when you don't feel like it. Ask God to help you in this effort because it's not something that we can do on our own. Actually, in a twist of irony, we have to seek the Lord in order to seek the Lord. We have to say, God, I need you to draw near to you. Thank you that you are near to me. And look what, look what he says in verse 7. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak. Literally in the Hebrew, it's do not let your hands sink. It's this Hebrew euphemism meaning don't lose heart. Trust in the Lord. Why? For your work shall be rewarded. Seeking the Lord takes effort. Now, not, listen to me, not unto salvation. I would be undoing the entire book of Romans if that's what I was saying. That is not what I'm saying. We do not seek the Lord in our own effort for salvation. That is not the case. We can't on our, on our own effort be saved on our own deeds, our own works and religion. But there is a spirit-empowered, grace-driven striving to know the Lord more and more and more because we value him. This summer, we had vacation Bible school. Does anyone remember what the theme was? It was treasure hunt. Good. Treasure hunt. Treasure hunt, basically the notion was kind of what we were talking about. Seek God above everything else. Value him as the treasure. And so I remember the first day on Monday, we went to go pick up our daughter, Genevieve, from her class. And she came out of the class, and she had this little cardboard box, looked like a treasure chest, and it was just drawn on, colored, it had all these little fake jewels, just bejeweled, bedazzled with all these things, and I said, sweetie, what do you have there? What did you learn today? And she said, oh, daddy, let me show you. She opens it up, and inside are all these little fake plastic jewels, and she pulls out this yellow cross, and she says, daddy, did you know that Jesus is our greatest treasure Here are the keys to the car, sweetie. What do you want? I mean, how cute is that? How is it that a four-year-old knows and understands that Jesus is our ultimate treasure, but we as adults struggle with that fact? Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. I just imagine this guy, he's cutting the corner, trying to get home, walking through this field, and he trips over this mound, and he looks, and he's like, what is this? And then he discovers, oh, my goodness, this is treasure. And so he goes home and collects everything he has, all his possessions, all his belongings, and he goes to the owner of that field and says, please, I beg of you, you can have everything. You can have everything, all that I am, please just let me have this field. And the farmer's like, sure, probably a weedy field anyway. And he buys the field. It says that in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Why? Because the value of that treasure he discovered is so much greater than everything he owned. Where we moved from in Nevada, northern Nevada, is one of the largest gold mining, gold producing areas in the world. It's number one in North America. And so while we lived there, I learned a lot about gold mining. And it is a detailed, intricate, expensive, long, drawn-out process. If you watch Discovery Channel, they have all kinds of shows on gold mining. You know, Gold Rush, Alaskan Gold Nuggets, Gold Ice Road Truckers, I don't know. (laughs) All these shows about gold mining, and these guys, they pour thousands, tens and tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money and their own blood and sweat and tears, all this time, all this effort, all this possessions into just mining a little bit of gold. Why? Well, because a few years ago, a single ounce of gold was worth almost $2,000. I don't have any gold fillings, but if I did, I'd be popping them suckers out and going to the pawn shop. I mean, why would they do that? Why so much effort And sweat equity because the value of the treasure is greater than the effort and work required to obtain it. And God says, seek me. I am right here. Value me above everything else. And so as soon as Asah hears these prophetic words, immediately, it says immediately, there's no hesitation in his obedience. Verse 8 He took courage and he demolishes the detestable idols in the land. He restores the altar of the Lord so they can return to worshiping the true God. He gathers all the people together to rally them to repent and return to God in verse 9 and 10. Verse 11, they sacrifice to the Lord a huge sacrifice and all the people enter into a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. Probably the craziest thing is verse 16. Look at verse 16. Asah removes his own mother as queen because she's following after other gods. Whew! That's cold-blooded. Imagine that conversation. Hey, mom, listen, um, I love you. You know I love you, right? But, uh, yeah, here's the thing. I, I know that you're following after other gods, and, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We are worshiping the one true God, and so... Um, Hey, thanks for giving birth to me. Thanks, thanks for raising me. And, and uh, yeah, uh, you're fired. I mean, that is a bold move. Anyone who is willing to fire their mama has devoted himself to the Lord. And look at verse 18. He gives, who knows how much, silver and gold, valuable sacred offerings to the Lord to contribute to the temple of the Lord. Wealth was nothing compared to his consuming zeal and passion for the Lord. Matthew 6, 21, 
Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we look back at chapter 15, verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Skip down to verse 19. And there was no more war. Let's pray. No, we can't pray. Because the story doesn't end there. Oh, how I wish it ended there, but it doesn't. Listen, folks, this is not called the triumph of King Esau. It's the what? Tragedy of King Esau. Because there's this one little pesky word in verse 19. What is it? Until. There was no more war until the 35th year of Esau's reign. Ah, why? Why, King Esau? Well, briefly, let's look at chapter 16 and how this concludes. Baasha, the king of Israel, comes against King Esau and Judah, and he begins to build a blockade as an act of war. Now, remember, Esau faced a million-man army. This was nothing. This was not that big of an obstacle, and so surely he would seek the Lord, right? No. Instead of seeking God, he seeks help from man and places his confidence in man. And the way he does it is atrocious. He robs the treasures, the silver and gold that he previously gave to God in order to bribe the king of Syria and his army to come to his aid. It's a complete reversal of chapter 15, verses 18. Self-reliance is one of the most heinous sins. Seeking the Lord is stifled by self-reliance. How often we make decisions without consulting the Lord. How often we seek comfort. How often we first seek others and not seek God. And if desperation is necessary to grow our faith, comfort is the antithesis. Comfort numbs and weakens our faith. So God sends a prophet again to Esau, not to encourage him this time, but to rebuke him. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Esau, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For, listen to this, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He's saying God is seeking those who are seeking him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Well, surely now Asa would repent, right? Once again, surely he would seek God with all his heart. Again, no. This godly rebuke actually enrages Asa. He puts the prophet in prison, puts him in the stocks, and then he's even cruel to his own people, it says. Because remember, chapter 15, when you forsake the Lord and you don't seek him, only death and destruction ensue. I mean, I'm reading this story, and I'm like, what happened? I mean, King Esau was seeking God with all his heart. What happened? Here's what I think happened. He got comfortable. And he stopped seeking the Lord, and he began relying on himself and on others instead. And this is blatantly seen in verse 12. 
Look at verse 12. Saul gets this disease in his foot. A severe, life-threatening infection. You know, normally people generally seek God when health becomes dire because they have nowhere else to look. They've tried modern medicine, they've tried physicians, and there's nothing wrong with all those things. But usually when they come to the end of the rope and they're just not getting any better health-wise, they have nowhere else to turn, they get desperate, and they seek God. So surely now Asa would seek the Lord, right? Again, sadly, no. Even in his disease, it says he did not seek the Lord, but sought help only from physicians. He refuses to seek the Lord, refuses to cry out to him, and it literally kills him. Listen, friends, you are either actively seeking the Lord or you're drifting. The story of King Asa, there's a lot of grace here. But this is a little scary, is it not? We are actively to seek the Lord. Now, I very much believe once saved, always saved. And and we are called to pursue God because he's worthy of that pursuit. Now, I want you to look in the the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3. If you want to follow along on the screens, you may. Philippians 3 says in verse 13, this is the words of Apostle Paul. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I don't care what happened in the past. I don't care about obstacles. I don't care about distractions. I don't care about any of these other pursuits that could pull me away from following God, from following Jesus, I have one singular pursuit, and it's to look at and focus on Jesus and pursue him with all my heart and all my strength and all my passion. That is a Jesus freak right there. Oh, that we would have the heart, that I would have the heart of the Apostle Paul, that I would be a Jesus freak like that. That is my prayer. And folks, lest you think I'm preaching only to you, I'm preaching to myself first. I want to be a Jesus freak. I want to obsessively just passionately pursue Jesus, be consumed with that thought of knowing him more and more and more. Here's the thing. Genuine faith in Christ will persevere and will endure. You know why? Because even a good king like Asa will fail. But there is one king who is worthy of your trust and he will never fail. He will never fail. And he knows that we will fail on our own to seek him. And so he empowers us. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. He, he gives us this grace-driven effort to seek him. And you might hear this message and be tempted to think, well, I guess I just need to try harder on my own ability, my own effort to be a good person and to seek the Lord. No. Listen, we cannot seek the Lord in our own effort, our own strength, and our own wisdom. We must rely on him, knowing this promise. God desires that we seek him.